Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that we could come together as a people of God to study your word. And thank you for the, the format of Sunday school, being able to interact with one another, being able to um, dig deeper together, to ask questions, to hear other people's understandings, to, to just put it all together. You are an amazing God that has saved a people, not just individual p- persons, but a people. And we just thank you that we get to be a part of the the church. And we ask that your spirit would lead and guide us this day in all truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me do this before we get started so that I can not make people feel like they're, um, they're having to worry about what to do when or, or volunteer for what. Do you see that I have certain passages on the front page that are in red font? Um, what I'd like to do is... Um, assign those out before we get started so that I can just look to the person. And Mark, if you could put a name next to the right font, you know where to take the microphone. Would anyone like to take 1 Samuel 8, 19 and 20? All right, we've got over here Paul Kavner, and then 1 Samuel 8, 21 and 22. Okay, let's go uh, back in the back there with Jane. And then PJ, because your hand was up, would you take 1 Samuel 25, 1? Perfect. And then I've got 1 Samuel 27, 6. All right, Jamie, and then I'll go with Gary in the back. Um, Gary, if you will take Genesis 17, 6. Gary, and then Genesis 17, 16. Anybody want that one? Uh, I'll go with uh, Sean, and then Mark, if you'll take Genesis 35, 11. And Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20, a little bit longer one. Anybody want to take that one? Okay, we'll go with Samuel on that one. It's appropriate that Samuel would end Samuel. <laughs> well played. Okay, all right, we've got that. <laughs> uh, okay, well, all right. So with that in mind, we're going to flip the page over to the back side of the page. We're going to do the info uh, graphic here. Um, and as usual... Um, the creators of this uh, graphic are all over the place, so I'm going to work with you on what section we're talking about. It. Um, and so with that, I, um, the book of, is actually titled Samuel. Notice he didn't put first or second Samuel because the, the book of Samuel was just Samuel, and they shortened it down and made it into two books. It is one continuous book. And that's the way we're going to take a look at it today. So as you look at the top left of your infographic, um, you've got the recap. We've already talked about this. We've seen this repeating. You've got the nation of Israel has been freed from bondage. That's the chains around that group in the top uh, left corner there, that group of people. And then it moves over to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai and the covenant uh, commandment. So we have the covenant made with this new generation of, of people, a, a reminder of God's faithfulness. It's a... Uh, a blessing of additional communication by God on, hey, look, you're now the people of God. I've taken you to be this people as a nation. This is how you'll interact with me. And then you've got to, next to the, to the right of that, you've got in the promised land. That's where he was taking them. And we saw them arrive there in Judges. And the promised land um, suggests a kingdom, a land with, with boundaries. So we know we're headed there theologically. We're not there yet. In fact, we're going to see today we're going to get there. But we see right below that, in that same little box under recap, it says, 
the chaos of judges. And you can see that uh, the, the judges were raised up. We talked about how judges judged over a geographic area. There were multiple judges at, at one time because we had multiple geographic areas. Um, so you could have that, that occur, occurring. And the, God would raise up these judges from a state of bringing righteousness and decision-making to deliverance. He moves them into the, into the act or the role of deliverance. And in fact, you can see that kind of gruesome uh, scene there. Um, it was a time of violence for sure. Um, and in fact, uh, by the end of Judges, we see that the people of, of uh, Israel have absolutely fallen into idolatry and are no different than the Canaanite people that they were called to remove out of the land. Okay, so that's our recap. That, so we have an idea what's going on. Now follow it all the way over to the opposite side of the page to the right, the top portion to the right. And then you've got a picture there of... Um, what has happened up to this point in the, um, is um, we have tribes of Israel. That's all the tents on the left side of that picture. And we're going to see in the book of Samuel, there's going to be a movement towards a united kingdom. So you see the one walled city there that suggests the kingdom. That city you could, uh, you'll find out is going to be uh, Jerusalem. And we're going to see that in today play out. All right, now that we've got that taken care of, now go underneath the box for recap. Go to the back left side of your page, and I want to show you that this breaks down here. You've got uh, chapter 1 through 7, and you see that it's in a box, and that's going to be dealing with our first of three characters, Samuel, the last judge. And then you're going to see uh, chapters 8 through 31 in what we call 1 Samuel, and that's really primarily, primarily going to be focusing on Saul. David's in the picture, but he's, he's backgrounded. Saul is the one that's in the, the, main, pic, the, the main character there. And then when we get to what we call 1 Samuel, uh, excuse me, 2 Samuel, you'll see that in uh, chapters 1 through 20, the main character there is David. And then finally in uh, chapters 21 to 24 of 2 Samuel, it's really an epilogue of the whole book. It's a summary. And what's fascinating, it's a theological summary. It's not a chronological, historical summary. So if you don't know that, you're going to be like, I don't understand these last few chapters. Why are they here? That's because he's going back over the theology that was intended in this book. Okay, so let's go back to uh, the chapters 1 through 7. Um, and I'm going to stay in that box. We've got Hannah, and Hannah is going to lay out in her, in her song. Um, Hannah uh, was without child. She was desperate to have a child. Can you not hear a throwback, a hyperlink, a connection back to Genesis with Abraham and Sarah, desperate, so, desperate for a child? We see that God is making this connection that we're in the next uh, major phase of God's work in the kingdom. And this is the bringing the kingdom itself to, to uh, fruition. So in uh, Hannah's song, we see God oppresses the proud and exalts the, the humble. By the way, I'm reading those extremely small words. I've, I've got, I know what they are, and I'm kind of trying to make it out as best as I can. Then you have underneath there the next bullet point. And again, these are theological bullet points that you may never have realized are part of that, that song. 
And then uh, God despises evil, uh, but God, excuse me, human evil, but God is at work. That's another theme that's going to play out in this book. And the third bullet point is God will raise up a messianic king. So a king different than all of the kings that we see through First and Second Samuel, or at least the first two kings, excuse me. We'll, we'll see the next, the, more of the kings next week with Pastor Pete leading. Uh, okay, so then you move down. At the same time that Samuel is, a, is arriving on scene, so is an enemy that uh, is moving in upward in prominence, and those are the Philistines. What's interesting about the Philistines is the Philistines are going to reveal that the Israelites, who think that the Philistines are the, the proud, that God is going to bring humble, the Philistines are actually used by God to show the Israelites, no, 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 you struggle with pride yourself. In fact, if you look at that under chapter 4 through 7, that little dark uh, bullet point there, if you will, what it's got on the left side are those soldiers holding the, the shields and the spears, are the Philistines, and on the right are the Israelites, and you have the Ark of God in the middle. And what Israel does is Israel, in their pride, shows up with the Ark of God and says, <laughs> we've got you defeated because we've got our, if you will, I'm, I'm using a little bit of, of uh, I don't know what, how to, what to call it. I'm, I'm losing my words. Basically, I'm, I'm getting a little loose with my understanding. They've got their lucky charm. That's the way they're treating the ark of God. Hey, as long as the ark's with us, we're good. We don't, it doesn't matter how we act. It doesn't matter who we are as, as far as our holiness as it relates to morality. We can just show up with this ark and we're going to win. And so what happens, because of their arrogance, the ark is stolen. And that's what the downward arrow on the left side of the box is. And then when it's stolen... God is, is using the ark as a reminder of the holiness and presence and power of God. So God, what you see right next to that little square on the bottom left corner there, is you can't make it out. That is a statue of Dagon to the right of it that's been cut in half or actually just fallen. The top half has fallen. We know that when the ark is brought near Dagon, <laughs> whack. God just whacks the idol of Dagon and knocks it over to, to let it be known, I don't stand in the presence of idols. That's not who I am. There is no God other than I am. And so he defeats the, uh, Dagon as far as the idolatry, excuse me, as far as the imagery of him as an idol that they worship. But in addition, he plagues that dark spot that looks almost like a, I don't know, like a blood spot or something, a, a large stain of evil and darkness. Those are the plagues that he brings upon uh, the, the Philistines. And they realize, oh, we want no part of the God of Israel, at least any mistreatment, i.e., we stole that which he rep represents his presence, the ark. So they return it back, and then we have the return of the ark. All right. So the point, that's the bottom box right there in that category. You've got three bullet points. God is not Israel's trophy. I called him a lucky charm. This, this particular one is calling him a, a trophy. Uh, God oppresses pride, whether it's the pride of the enemies of God or the people of God. God oppresses, uh, excuse me, he opposes. I said that wrong. Sorry, got to get that word right. Opposes pride. And then the third point, Israel must remain humble. That's a huge theme of the book of First uh, and Second Samuel. All right, so now let's move over to um, chapters 8 through 31. The first thing I want you to notice 
um, is that it's going to, we already said it's dealing with uh, Saul. Um, notice the ark. It looks like the McDonald's arcs ha- uh, happening there, that the, the M. Well, one arc is going up from uh, chapters 8 to 31, and, and then as it, as it comes to the top, and then it comes back down. And then you've got another arc doing the same thing, and it involves David. And we're going to see in both the king's life, the king fashioned after the kings of the other nations, Saul, and David, the king who is a, a, a king after Dave, uh, God's own heart, both of them go through this process where that they, they have this upward uh, that God exalts them, and then they have a downward where they abuse uh, and take for granted God's grace and mercy, and you see the consequence of that in their lives. So let's look at 8 through 10 there on the top of that, ma- that box that it says 8 through 31. In the top left of that big box, you've got... Uh, the, the nation of Israel, that, was the, that grouping of people, saying, hey, we want a king. Remember, they, God had always promised them a king. They want a king, and the wording is critical. They want a king like the kings of the other nations. Kings enforce laws. That would mean they want a king that doesn't enforce the laws of their God, Yahweh, but the, gods of the, the, excuse me, the laws of the other people. They want to stay in a state of sin and somehow have this happy, peaceful kingdom. How's that working in our society today? Not so well. We can see how much this applies to our society as well. So we have the picture of that Samuel, excuse me, uh, yeah, that's Samuel standing there all alone thinking, what? You know, how arrogant of you. Samuel, what's seen is that cloud to the right that says God. That's Samuel petitioning God and going, what do you want me to do with this people? What do you want to do? thinking like he's gonna, we're gonna, God's going to take him out for you know, wanting this king like the other nations, the, the, the kings of foolishness, the kings of rebellion against God. And God says, give him a king. Give them what their heart desires. Oh, you've got to be careful if God ever says, give them what your heart desires. Because every time he's using that, with the exception of Pro- Proverbs, it says that I will give you what your heart desires with the understanding that it's, you're, you're aligning your will to his will. When, and most of the time we see that expression, it is, oh, I'm going to give you, you desire sin, I'm going to give you that, that sin as a consequence. You're going to feel the, feel the full weight of that sin. And so God gives him David, or excuse me, Saul, and Saul has character flaws. That's what you see the picture. See how tall Saul is there? Tall as the handsome, outwardly right king. Boy, that'll, he'll intimidate people just by his presence. That's what they are looking for in a king. And he his character flaws are dishonest. He's prideful. And he lacks integrity. Not a good combo for your king. So then right below it, it says uh, dis, uh, Saul disobeys God's commands, particularly in chapters 13 and 15. And then we see uh, uh, Samuel uh, pointing his finger at Saul, saying, Israel needs a humble, faithful king. Hear that theme working out again? That's what Samuel's basically communicating to Saul here. Uh, and the people are... are are upset with Saul, and you can see that they're, they're, the exclamation part above their head. And then you have proud Saul is brought low, and that's the beginning of his de- demise. We'll go back up, move over a column. We're still in 8 through 31. And uh, Joe and Mally, do you guys have a, a handout? Wonderful. Great. Great. Because otherwise you'd be totally lost. <laughs> All right. So on the, on the second half of 8 through 31, you've got God exalts humble David. See, that's the upward arc we see. David is still in the background in 1 Samuel, 
but he's humble David. He's David not by fa- family prominence. David in the family prominence is the little guy. He's the, the, the shepherd boy. He, he doesn't have any standing, if you will, in his family, and that's exactly what God is looking for. That is exactly what God wants in, in the, to represent the king. So we have uh, David acting humble, God rising, raising him up, excuse me, and he defeats uh, uh, Goliath. And then you've got David off to the left side there. It says David rise, rises the power. That's him holding the uh, shield and, and, the, and the sword. And interesting enough, in, proxim, or in relative to size of Saul, you can see the two di- the differences. You might say their, their pride is relative in that picture. The smaller man, David, is, is a humble man. And then you, you, um, you have um, Saul in the middle. He's sitting on the throne, and he says, I hate David. You can see his hands around his head. Um, and you, we see this where he actually starts to show the, how much he hates David for God raising him up. And so um, you start to see Saul hunting David. And you see in the middle there, um, while the people on the left side of that little column are saying, we love David. And Saul is saying, we hate, I hate David. You've got David hiding for the injustice against him. Saul wants to kill him. Saul tries to throw a spear at him and take his life. And, and then finally we see on the bottom right corner there that looks like almost like a blood stain. And then in the middle is a picture of someone who is face down. That is Saul and his defeat at the end of first Sam, what we know as 1 Samuel. Interesting enough, you've got their... Uh, uh, psalms that are tied to it. And I, I don't know, you, I know you probably can't read it, but that's Psalm, uh, well, I think that is Psalm 18, 52, 53, and 57, all tied to this episode happening in David's life. And uh, we see that da- each of those, and in each of those psalms, they're about David's trust in God. And at the same time of, of Saul's downward, Saul is using his own judgment and and determining what is right and best for him to to have victory in the battle and David's doing just the opposite David's going trusting in what God has to say and do all right I'm going to take you to a picture here there's a character study before we move into the uh, second Samuel where it says uh, chapters 1 to 20 move up to the right side and it'll say character studies in the bold under about the second bubble down there it's not it's above the columns it's uh it's below where it, we were dealing with Israel as a, as a bunch of tribes and Israel as a united kingdom. So right below that, you'll see Samuel, Saul, and David all listed there. And here's the character studies that are taken here in Samuel. And that first one is, it's a warning against Saul. See how the arrow points up to Saul? And it's to, we need to reflect on our flaws and deal with our own dark side. We are all like Saul, where we have a propensity to sin. Some stain remains on our souls, and we need to be diligent to recognize them and address that. And then the, on the, as it relates to David, notice the, the other one is David. David is an, uh, pointing to David. David is an example of trust. Um, he hopes despite human evil. Boy, in today's world, that's a help to me. I see evil just escalating, I mean, just exponentially. David hopes despite evil. He knows how evil the kingdom is under Saul's rule. His life is being sought. 
My life isn't being sought now. David knows this, and yet his hope is in God, and he doesn't outpace God. He stays humble to God and says, your chest move, I'll wait for you to do what you're going to do. A great reminder for us. And then uh, uh, God oppresses, excuse me, opposes. I keep saying the word oppresses. Opposes the proud, and he exalts the humble as another reminder. Okay, now let's get back into the columns. We're now we're under uh, chapter 1 through 20 in 2 Samuel. And again, this, the, the main uh, character in this uh, section is going to be David. And we have um, another indication of David's humility is that the death of the man that has been trying to kill him, sending out the entire army to hunt him down like a dog, a flea, he says, or a dog, he laments for the death of his king. So you're talking about a humble man. I don't know how many of us could do that. I mean, we'd probably say, good riddance, see you, bye. Um, okay. And then right below there, it says success and blessing. That's David experiencing it there. Um, uh, you can see to the left of where it says success and blessing, you've got people standing there, and they're all holding their banners of the individual tribes there. And they're saying, be our king, be our king. And so David, in fact, is, uh, be- becomes the king, and he unites the nation. And we've got uh, um, David ends up conquering the, town, the, the Jebusites who were occupied uh, uh, Jerusalem. And he takes Jerusalem and he makes it his political capital. And then he says, okay, I think it's time to make it the uh, religious capital as well. I need to build God a house here. Remember that portion of that? And God says, no, 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 no. Thanks, but no thanks. Um, I'm, uh, thanks for, I've never asked for a house. You don't need to do that. In fact, I'm going to flip the tables around. I am going to build you a house. And he refers to the house as a dynasty, not just a physical structure, a, a family dynasty. Now, go directly straight up into the middle of this uh, infograph, underneath the word Samuel in big font that we could, all of us can fortunately read. But right below that, we get back to the tiny font again. This is the dynasty he's talking about. You see the first little lion on the left there. Um, the, it's, it's referencing that this dynasty will, will have a future king um, it'll have a future temple that is an eternal kingdom, is what he's pointing to. And then in the middle there, that you've got key characters, uh, excuse me, chapters and, and the uh, biblical story under Psalms uh, 2, 72, 132, and 145, oftentimes referred to as Messianic Psalms. They, they point to the Messiah. You've got the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, Um, and uh, um, Zechariah speaking of the promise of this Messiah, this Messianic king. And then off to the right, right, you realize that he's talking about the promise ultimately to Abraham, not just as of of a king, but of an eternal king. He's taking the promise of Abraham, and he's now giving us additional information that nobody realized then. They, They were only thinking kinghood in the lineage of human beings. So kings that would always be at some, po- at some level sinful. And he, no, he's taking it up to a different level. He's upping it to know this will be an ep- and this, this promise, it will be that of an eternal messianic king or an appointed uh, uh, messiah, if you will. Okay, so now let's uh, uh, continue on. Um, at the beginning of the no- next col- column, right underneath the big number 20 under the, under chapters 1 through 20, We've got David and Bathsheba. 
Notice this is where the ark changes, and it changes fast. Um, we've got the, uh, he commits uh, adultery with Bathsheba. He uh, has um, basically um, Uriah assassinated by how it's done. Um, and then we have him marrying Bathsheba after now she's available. So he marries her. And then you've got to the left of that, you've got um, Nathan saying, you are the man. But different than Saul, you have David bent over, as you can see there, head lowered. And he says, I have sinned. He recognizes his sinfulness. So he's acting in contrast to how Saul acted when confronted with his sinfulness. He just made excuses and said, well, I had to do this. So we've got under chapter 12 there, it says the prophet Nathan confronts David. And then we start to see the consequences of David's sin in the latter part of 2 Samuel. And and it's a sad testimony, but it's true that even a man after God's own heart feels the consequence of sin in his life. And we see it um, uh, in the box there under chapter 13, where Amnon, one of his sons, sexually assaults Tamar. Absalom, in time, murders or has murdered um, uh, Anon. And then moving down from there, Absalom um, then uh, begins a rebellion. You see the, the picture of someone behind the rock. That's David having to flee a second time. First time he fled out into the wilderness, he fled because Saul was pursuing him. Now he's fleeing because his own son is pursuing him. Both men want his life. And then uh, we see, uh, if you'll notice, there's a, uh, a little... Uh, Headstone, rest in peace. That little red, uh, excuse me, rounded top headstone right next to David leaned over. It's Absalom. It has died, and David mourns. And we really see the the remainder of David's life. Um, David is in an increasing state of brokenness over his sinfulness and the consequences of his sinfulness. It's no statement about God. It's a statement about his own choices. And so we see that taking place. Well, so now we finally get to the epilogue, which helps put it all together theologically. And so hopefully when you read chapter 21 to 24 in the future, you go, oh, now I get why these are here and why we seem to be jumping out of chronological order. So what happens here, notice it says right underneath 21 to 24, there's failure of Saul. And that uh, talks about what he calls 21A. Um, and then if you look at the very bottom of that box, what's happening is he's using it as bookends. The book is going to end with the failure of David and the harms it brought the Israelites. So those are the, the bookend themes. And the next one's down. If you go back again underneath the, now the failure of Saul, you have David and his mighty men um, versus the Philistines. And it's a, in that, what's interesting about that, David in that picture is weak. It's not about David the strong man. It's about David the weak who has to rely more on God. And then, again, the same thing happens. It's a bookend. You go to the second uh, uh, section on the bottom there, which is referenced as to 23b, David and his mighty men, the Philistines, and another story about weak David. So you see that these bookends are moving inward towards the main theme here, and that's uh, uh, chapter 22 to uh, 23a. If in that middle section, it says David's poetic memoirs. And it, he remembers God's grace in, this, in these uh, poetic mo- memoirs. Think about Hannah's song. 
We started this book with Hannah's song in a poetic version. We're ending the, and with, and she gave us the theological themes. Now we have David doing the same thing. And when you go, oh, now I see the book ending that's, uh, that's happening. It's reminding us of what Hannah dealt with at the beginning here. And some of those themes, again, are uh, God's grace, God's covenant promise that he's faithful and he does accomplish no matter what the, the, the evil is that's trying to derail him or, or take his, his plan off track. And hope for a future messianic king, a king even better than King David was. So that's the, the gist of Samuel. Um, hopefully this will uh, help you to some degree. Let's flip the, the, this over, and we can go through this. This will move a little more quickly. Um, let's look at the overview. We've got four points underneath it. First one is everyone doing what was right in his own eyes. This is what was happening in the judges during the days of the judges has resulted in Israel imaging the Canaanites, not Yahweh. We were created to be image bearers. They're bearing the image of the Canaanites. They are all messed up at the, book of, at the end of Judges as we enter into the book of Samuel. The book of Judges closes with absolute lawlessness run amok. There is a desperate need for order through a single ruler, a king. In other words, the judges um, who are judging and being raised up as deliverers are in geographic areas, and that's not working. So in some sense, the Israelites get it, and they realize, and then when they ask, we want a king, they're saying, the system we got right now isn't working. What they, and so we're going to look at, let's, let's continue on before I give, my, give way to what I want to speak of here in the next point. Rather than look to Yahweh's covenanted, so now you got, I mean, Yahweh, that means he's faithful. When he covenants, he, he co- carries through on his covenant. He never breaks. Uh, his covenant kingly rule by his law. Rather than them wanting that and seeing Yahweh as their king, the morally corrupted Israelites determined that a king like those of the other nations would establish a singular rule and nationwide order following the ways of the world. Yeah, those ways bring about the corruption that brings a demise to every nation that ever tries it that way. So they are foolish in that idea. And so we end up in point number four. Thus Yahweh gave the people the desires of their hearts in order to show them that that societal redemption, God's people being redeemed as a people and who they are and how they conduct themselves from moral corruption can only come through a king appointed by God who also brings about an individual Redemption as well, and we know that through the work of Christ Jesus. Okay, title. First and Second Samuel uh, were originally written as a single book called Samuel. We knew that. This is interesting. The Septuagint, which is the Greek. Oh, you know what? I ran right past some uh, verses. Goodness, goodness, Nicholas. Why don't we have Paul? You go ahead and read First Samuel eight nineteen to twenty as it related to uh, them wanting a different kind of king. Uh, Samuel eight nineteen and 20. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we, may, that we also may be like the, uh, all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Yeah, not if he's a, a king made after uh, the world. He's not. All right, 1 Samuel 8, 21 to 22, Jane. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. 
And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. Okay, so he says, All right, fine, I'll give you the king. Not going to be what you, it's what you want, but you, what you want is only going to be, bring cor- more corruption. So as it relates to the Septuagint, some of you, that may be a new word. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Bible by the Jews that took place in the 3rd century B.C. So they took the Hebrew language and the Jews themselves turned it into another language. So it's, it's considered, I'm going to say, relatively reliable. The reason that I say relatively, because sometimes you'll see them, they seem to make things a little nicer. They seem to not, it's not a, sometimes you sit there and you go, that's not even close to what the Hebrew is saying. So we've got to be careful with the Septuagint. And the Septuagint wasn't one Bible like we know it. The Septuagint was written as such. And, it, and you just it's like here's a little over here that was found over here and a little found over here and a little found over here. So we've got to be real careful that we don't look at the Septuagint and say, well, whatever it says, it's, it's the authoritative. And yet, Jesus Christ will quote the Septuagint over the Hebrew Bible sometimes. And so you know that the, he, the Septuagint is reliable at times. So you've got to just be, be aware of that with the Septuagint. Um, you just got to know there's that tension there. Okay. Um, let me see where we're at here. Come on, Nicholas. Oh, the Septuagint referred to First and Second Samuel as First and Second Kingdoms. Isn't that fascinating? And the books that Pete's going to teach on next week with First and Second Kings, it referred to as Third and Fourth Kingdoms. Fascinating. Just thought, thought you'd like to know that that's what the way they were thinking, the Jews were thinking of those books in the third century BC. Our author is unknown. Let's look at 1 Samuel 25 1. PJ, that's you. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Okay, Samuel dies in 1 Samuel 25 1. We're not even to 2 Samuel. Do you see a problem with Samuel being the author? Now, you could believe that Samuel had this prophetic status and he wrote all about the future before it ever came to pass. So I want to challenge you beyond that and see and make you aware of other ways that this could have, been, uh, could have occurred. First off, uh, rabbinic tradition teaches that the book was written by prophets who lived contemporaneously with the events described. So there are prophets that God is using, like he frequently uses prophets, to write this information down. Another uh, uh, point to consider is that the final editing and composition, we've talked about that. God will use uh, people's writings that he has inspired, and he will have the editor, under inspiration, put it in form so that it communicates what God wants, wants it to communicate. Remember the epilogue. An epilogue is basically a summary at the end of your story. Remember, the epilogue is not in chronological order like the rest of the book. It would seem that a compiler is using that under divine inspiration to, to point to outer, inner, and the primary in the middle that focused back to Hannah's uh, uh, song, that this is the point, the theological points that you would miss if he left it in just chronological order. So we have to, uh, the, to look at this and realize, okay, there's a pretty good chance that God uses, and we've seen this in the other books so far, compilers, those that are acting an editing role under inspiration of God to arrange the writing so that we get more understanding. There's a greater theological understanding for us, the readers, centuries later. 
later as well as the, the original readers of it. Okay, let's continue on. Uh, final editing and composition are believed to have occurred around the 9th or 8th century. Notice that uh, you're probably going, Nick, why did you go not go 8th or 9th? That's because we're moving downward because we're B.C. So 9th or 8th century B.C. due to previous events and kings. Um, 1 Samuel 27.6. That's Jamie, if you want to read that one. This is referring to uh, when David had fled to Gath and uh, Saul decided not to pursue him. He asked the king there uh, for um, a, uh, a place to stay. And the, the verse here says, So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. There's a lot of history there. So we've moved down a lot of kings. So what's going on there then? That's got to be later than when the, these events are occurring. Somebody's adding information here. And, and then you have the, uh, well, we've seen this uh, a couple times in the books um, that we've seen so far, number B there, or letter B underneath final editing. It says the expression, to this day. Again, those are historical expressions saying that the writer is writing at a later time, referring back to an earlier time. So you can look up all those verses where they say that. And then the date, most of the 11th century and the first quarter of the 10th century is when this took place, the book of Samuel, if you want an idea of when it took place. Most of the 11th century and the first quarter of the 10th century. And then you got the basic outline. We kind of went through this, but I'm going I'm to go over it again. Three main players, Samuel. Remember, he's Israel's last human judge. It, the judges aren't working. He is the last human judge. So we have a transition here, and that's 1 Samuel um, chapters 1 through 8. And then you have Saul. He's a king. He's Israel's first king, but he's not God's choice. God allowed the people's choice to be the, the king at that time as the appointed king. So he's Israel's king fashioned after the kings of the other nations, and that's 1 Samuel 9, chapters 9 through 31, the end of the 1 Samuel. And then you, David comes along as the main character, and we have David... Israel's king, a man after God's own heart. And that's primarily uh, in focus there on 2 Samuel. All right, something fascinating. And Pete, I, I wanted to make sure I shared this with you. I actually got this next graph here from our good old R.C. Sproul, the Reformation Study Bible. I liked it because some of the outlining that it, some of the other books did was so exhausted, I couldn't have put it in here. Um, it would have overwhelmed you. They made it real simple. Let's take a look at this in this little... Uh, graph, if you will, chart. So on the, on the left, we have Saul. We see his early successes, and then we, have it, and then we come to the, the chapters that deal with his grievous sin, and then what he, how he handles it. He handles it with bitterness, revenge, and jealousy. Okay, what's, well, let's see how David does. David has early success, and it outlines his chapters. He also falls into grievous sin, but what's different about David is, David, you have sorrow and repentance easy for me to grasp when I'm trying not to get too far down in the weeds with a very exhaustive outline. Okay, and then the final themes there. The first one is the unfolding of Israel's prophesied kingdom and king, excuse me, kingship and kingdom. I want you to see how far back this prophecy goes in the book so we can see that, oh, this was intended all along by God. So, Gary, uh, Genesis 17:6. Uh, Genesis, yeah, he's got it. Oh, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Okay, we're back in Genesis with Abraham, and, we, and God is giving him 
more information about the covenant that he's given Abraham. And so in chapter 17, we see that information. And then uh, Sean had verse 16, 17, 16. That's all right. So Genesis 17, 16, it's the first book. <laughs> Just helping you out. <laughs> that's all right. No, that's all right. Um, 1716. There it is. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Okay, so we see that again in Genesis. And then 3511, Mark, that's you. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your body, your own body. So we're, we're seeing a pattern here, and then finally in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, the second law or the second giving of the law. Um, Samuel, if you'll go ahead and read that. Yeah, I'll be reading from the NASB version. So, when you enter the land with Yahweh your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom Yahweh your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since, the, since Yahweh has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or, or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come out when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself a copy of this law, on a scroll in the presence of Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by carefully observing all the words of this law on these statuses, stat, sorry, statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, to the right or the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Very clear instructions on when they, uh, what a king is supposed to do when God brings him a king. So the king was always intended. So the, the second and third themes, and we'll end here and I'll close in prayer. Israel's king was to be set apart from the earthly kings, subject to God's word, rule, and authority. And that's where David fell down. He loved, we know in Psalm 119, he loved the law, and, but he fell down to it. And he did not uh, adhere to it as he was called to. The, the, thus, we have a need for a greater righteous king who would usher in a final eternal kingdom. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for allowing us the opportunity to study this, to see how you have allowed this book to be arranged that we could understand the bigger themes the threads that you are carrying forward in this progressive revelation that we call our bible 
your revealing of yourself. We just thank you that uh, you have allowed us by the power of your spirit to, to dive into this, and we pray that you would further guide us in understanding this, that we might be changed, that we would not be imager, image bearers of the Can- like the Canaanites or of the Canaanites, even worse, but we would be image bearers of our son, excuse me, of our king, your son, Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.